Thank you everybody for joining us today for our webinar, Maintaining Trust in a Crisis. I'm really excited to have Elio Fred Garcia join us today to talk about ways to build trust, inspire loyalty, and lead effectively. So just to give you a rundown of what you can expect today, we will do a quick introduction of our speaker with his bio. Uh, then he will launch into the webinar, which will last about 80 minutes. And we will wrap up with uh, some final Q&A if we have time and a few closing remarks. If you have any questions, feel free to leave them in the chat. And if we're not able to get to them today, uh, Professor Garcia will respond to them via email and we'll send those out to all of you. In addition to this, we will be sending out the deck as well. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Elio Fred Garcia. For more than 40 years, Elio Fred Garcia has helped leaders build trust, inspire loyalty, and lead effectively. He is a coach, counselor, teacher, writer, and speaker whose clients include some of the largest and best known companies and organizations in the world. And I actually had the distinct pleasure of having, and you might have noticed I referred to him earlier as Professor Garcia. Um, simply out of habit, I had the pleasure of having him at NYU Stern, one of my favorite professors and truly a pleasure um, to be in class with. I'm still using his frameworks for communication um, in crisis today. So without further ado, I hand it over to you, Professor Garcia. Thank you so much, Amelia, and hello, everybody. Delighted to have the opportunity to spend some time with you today. Uh, I uh, encourage you to leave questions in, in the chat. Uh, if, if we have time at the end, I'll take as many as I can, uh, but any that we don't get to, I'll be happy to respond to in writing, send it off to Amelia, and she and her, her colleagues will send them off uh, to you. You will also get a PDF of the slides along the way. Uh, just by way of brief introduction, uh, I'm very fortunate to have what I consider to be one of the coolest jobs I can imagine having. And that is I run a crisis management and executive leadership firm. And our mission is to equip people to be leaders who ignite and inspire change in the world for the good. And we do that in a number of ways. We do that working with clients. We do that teaching in graduate business and professional programs. We do that writing. We do that speaking to groups like you guys. And we do that because we believe that there is a way of being effective leaders that can help move organizations and sectors and industries and ultimately society at large to better places. Uh, in addition to the work we do with clients, uh, I have the good fortune, as Amelia mentioned, to be on the faculty of the Stern School of Business at New York University, where I teach crisis management in the executive MBA program, and where I teach reputational risk and crisis management in the master's in risk management program. Perhaps more relevant to the work that you do in chemistry, I am also a professor of professional development and leadership in the Graduate School of Engineering at Columbia University, where among other things, I teach masters and PhD students crisis prevention for engineers and crisis response 
for engineers. What I hope to share with you today is some foundational principles of effective crisis response that includes a leadership mindset, includes the importance of asking the right questions in the right order in order to make and execute smart choices. And I will share with you a case study, in this instance, not of chemistry. I find if I teach subject matter experts a case study in their subject matter, they tend to speak about, discuss, and argue the underlying personalities or companies in the case study, but I want you to see the patterns, and the patterns are universal. One of the things I do in my work is I study patterns. I study patterns of leadership. I study patterns of crises. I study pa patterns of audience reaction in a crisis. I study the patterns that describe how trust works, what the drivers of trust are, how trust is lost, how trust can be recovered. And I'm gonna share some of those patterns with you today. Here's the first pattern. Bad things happen all the time and trust doesn't fall just because something bad happens. Bad things happen even to good companies, even to good people, even to good organizations. And just because something bad happens doesn't mean the company is a bad company or the people in the company are bad people. Stakeholders give organizations, people, and companies a momentary benefit of the doubt when something happens. And what ultimately determines the outcome in a crisis is not the severity of the bad thing, but rather what the company or organization or leaders in the company are seen to be doing about that bad thing. And you can look at two organizations in identical crises. And in one organization, trust plummets. And in the other organization, trust remains or even goes up. But they had the same crisis at the same time in the same way. The difference in outcome is based on how seriously and how quickly the organization took that crisis whether they made smart choices quickly and executed on them or whether they didn't. So that's one of the first patterns. It's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you that counts. And in our 80 minutes together, I hope to cover three things. The first is the drivers of trust and how to understand trust. And one of the patterns we find is that trust is the foundation of most of the other measures of competitive advantage or competitive position. Trust drives stock price. Trust drives employee morale and productivity. Trust drives demand for products and services. Trust drives whether regulators torment you or leave you alone. Understanding the drivers of trust can help us understand how to make smart choices when we face a difficult situation. I will then shift to the defining 
leadership skill. And that is in a crisis to never make choices based on personal preference, but rather to use clear decision criteria that are based on the drivers of trust. I will show a case study that brings these principles to life. And then I will share a conceptual framework on how to restore trust if trust has been lost. So with that, let me move to the drivers of trust. Again, when bad things happen, whether because you did something bad or something bad happened to you or something bad happened in the world and you are suffering collateral damage, for example, like COVID or recession or supply chain problems, whether you are the cause of the crisis, the recipient of the crisis, or collateral damage in the crisis, the foundational goal is to maintain the trust of those who matter because trust drives all of the other measures of competitive position. And of all the ways to understand trust, at least at the level of institutional leadership, the one that I have found most helpful is this. Trust is a consequence of three things. Trust is a natural consequence of three related but not identical phenomena. So here they are. The first is trust arises when promises we make are fulfilled. Now they can be explicit promises, will be there for you, or they can be implicit promises of the form you might find, say, in a brand identity. But whether an explicit promise or an implicit promise, when we fulfill promises, the result is trust. When we fail to fulfill promises, the result is trust falls. And here's a pattern. It is much harder to restore trust after it has been lost than it is to maintain trust in the first place. So it's critically important to know the drivers of trust before the crisis happens so that we can do what is necessary to maintain trust. And the first thing is, if we have made promises, explicit or implicit, we need to fulfill those promises. A related idea is the trust arises when expectations are met. Now, sometimes the expectations are set by us in the form of a promise, but there are other ways expectations are set. One set of expectations is what is required by law. If the law requires you to do certain things and your stakeholders expect you to follow the law and expectations are set by legal requirements. Expectations can also be set by contract. But the most challenging expectations <clears throat> are expectations that are set societally. And those societal expectations are dynamic. So expectations can be set through events beyond your control. So for example, we saw a little more than two years ago after the murder of George Floyd, that suddenly there were expectations of companies to take positions 
on very divisive social issues. We saw the same thing in the aftermath of Harvey Weinstein being revealed to be an even bigger creep than we thought he was, and the hashtag MeToo movement arose. Suddenly, expectations about what behaviors will be tolerated in the workplace were different. We saw the same kind of thing just last month after the Supreme Court decision uh, that overturned Roe v. Wade, and suddenly companies were being subjected to expectations that they didn't create but were out there. It is critically important to keep a pulse on societal expectations because they are dynamic, and if we fail to meet societal expectations in the crisis, we are likely to lose the trust of a meaningful percentage of our stakeholders. The third way to understand trust is that trust is the consequence of our stated values being the lived experience of those who matter to us. Another way of thinking about it is when we declare a value, that is a form of promise that sets an expectation. Now, we can map this idea very simply in this way. When a crisis becomes public, regardless of the source of the crisis, stakeholders look to leaders to see what they will do next. And if in that moment of crisis, in that moment of decision, we are seen to fulfill promises, we are seen to meet expectations, we are seen to live our stated values, the result is trust. Trust remains. If we do that early enough in the life cycle of the crisis, no matter how visible the crisis gets, the fact that we have fulfilled expectations keeps trust in. And then all we have to do is maintain the continuing fulfillment of those expectations. But if we fail to fulfill promises, if we fail to meet expectations, if our stakeholders experience us as living contrary to our stated values, if stakeholders are disappointed in us, then trust will fall. Now, it is possible to recover from a dip in trust. It may not be easy, but it is possible to recover from a dip in trust. But if we persistently fail, or if we miss on a really big promise, or a really big expectation, if those who matter to us feel betrayed by us, then it will be very difficult to recover that trust, at least during the life cycle of the crisis. And for some of our stakeholders, we may never end up recovering their trust. But by the same token, if we over-deliver on crises, on expectations, if we over-deliver on promises, if we over-deliver, trust can go up. If we dramatically over-deliver, then trust can soar. When trust soars because we have over-delivered on expectations, I begin to worry that that may set a new expectation and we may be unable to meet that expectation in the future. So there we need to manage expectations down. 
So one way to think about the leadership burden in anticipating crises is we need to manage expectations and make sure that whatever expectations we set, we are capable of delivering on. So those are the drivers of trust. Now let's begin to apply them in making decisions when things go wrong. Again, whether they go wrong because we did something that caused the crisis, or someone did something to us, which caused the crisis, or something happened in the world and we happen to be collateral damage, how do we maintain trust in the crisis? It begins by taking seriously the need to use clear decision criteria to come to a conclusion about what we need to do. So here's the leadership discipline. It's never about how we feel as leaders in the crisis. It's never about our personal preference. And we're gonna see in the case study, I'm gonna share in about 20 minutes, that if we make decisions based on personal preference, we are likely to lose the trust of those who matter to us because in crisis, leaders who make decisions on personal preference tend to become self-protective, tend to move into a self-protective crouch and make choices that make themselves feel less vulnerable, but has the effect of actually infuriating stakeholders because they then perceive us as breaking our promises or not fulfilling legitimate expectations or not living our stated values. So here's the central decision criterion. This is the big takeaway of everything I'm sharing with you today. The central question to ask in the crisis, once we know what the crisis is, is this. Think about the stakeholders who matter to you, your investors, your customers, your employees, your regulators, your business partners. Think about the crisis itself. Think about the stakeholders who matter to you and then ask this question. What would reasonable people among those who matter to you appropriately expect a responsible organization to do in this situation. Now, let's unbundle these just a bit. Reasonable people can still be emotionally distraught. Reasonable people may be suffering because of the crisis that doesn't make them unreasonable. But one of the reasons we point to reasonable people as the starting point is we don't make decisions based on the trolls. We don't make decisions based on determined adversaries. We don't make decisions based on bots on social media. We make decisions based on those whose trust we need, those whose trust we have, or those whose trust we had, and ask what would reasonable people, even if they're suffering, appropriately expect not us to do, but a responsible organization. And this is one of the ways that we avoid personal preference. When I go into a conference room as a client is trying to figure out a crisis, if they're asking what 
should we do, I can predict that they're going to come up with suboptimal solutions. But what would a responsible company like us do? They are far more likely to come up with a better, more productive resolution. So the need to maintain some distance from our own anxieties is a key part of this. Now, we can answer this question, what would reasonable people appropriately expect a responsible organization to do to a very granular level for every stakeholder group? We can define the expectations large, what would all of our employees appropriately expect? Or we can define it small. What would those employees who were in a facility when an accident happened appropriately expect? And those who were in a facility that might have a safety situation would have different expectations than those who are not in that facility. And we can define the expectations large or the expectations of a smaller, more granular group, and we should. What would all of our customers expect? What would those customers who bought a particular product in a particular time frame, and now there's something wrong with that product, expect? So we can ask this question at whatever level of granularity is most appropriate given the crisis itself and given the stakeholders who would be affected by the crisis, and we should. But there's a common expectation and we need to understand for each particular set of expectations, have we set expectations that we need to fulfill? What are we required by law to do? What are we required by contract to do? What would people expect us to do based on past experience? All of these we can ask about particular stakeholder groups. What are expectations set by society? And how do we navigate those societal expectations, but whatever the particular expectations are, we need to begin by addressing a common expectation. And this is the second biggest takeaway. There's a common expectation that applies to all stakeholders in all forms of crisis and all forms of organization. And if we meet this common expectation, we will lock in the trust of those who matter to us. And here is the common expectation. In every crisis, every stakeholder expects the company, the organization, its leaders to care. Every stakeholder expects the organization to care. First, to care that something happened that should not have happened, that some process or some system or some human judgment failed and needs to be addressed and needs to be remediated. To care that people are vulnerable because of that failure, to care that there may be victims of that failure, to care for the well-being of those victims, to care for the well-being of others who might be vicariously victimized by what happened. That we need to care is the common expectation. What it means to care may be different for this stakeholder group or that stakeholder group or the other stakeholder group. 
what it means to care may be different from one kind of crisis to another kind of crisis. What it means to care may be different early in the crisis than later in the crisis. But that we need to care is the constant. And one of the patterns we find is that the single biggest predictor that trust will fall is not the severity of the crisis, but the perception that we don't care. The perception of indifference is toxic. And anything we do that contributes to the perception of indifference leads to loss of trust. So here's a quick and dirty way to think about that. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And we need to be, we need to be on guard against the perception of indifference. So our strategy, the universal strategy in every crisis is this. We need to make a timely demonstration that we care. And this timely demonstration that we care needs to be followed by a persistent demonstration that we continue to care. And this persistent demonstration that we continue to care needs to continue for as long as the expectation of caring continues to exist. Now, I have clients, including clients in the chemicals field, I have clients who are pretty good at showing they care quickly. I have clients who are pretty good at continuing to show that they continue to care. But one of the patterns is the longer the crisis plays out, eventually the client will come to me and say, you know, I'm tired of this. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to get back to work. I don't want to keep meeting with my people. I don't want to keep saying I'm sorry. I want to get back to work. My reply is, I can understand why you feel that way, but this isn't about you. This is about them. And one of the burdens of leadership is to continue to show we care for as long as that expectation of caring continues to exist and failure to show we care, at least at the institutional level. We don't need to be the sole executive in the demonstration of caring, but collectively the leadership team at whatever level needs to continue we show we care as long as the expectation of caring continues to exist. That's the central leadership mindset in getting through a crisis well. The next challenge is when do we show we care? And there's a tendency, especially, forgive me for those attorneys in the room, especially in the stereotype of how legal counsel often give advice. I'm heartened that these days it's more of a stereotype than a normative standard, but there's a tendency to want to say and do or be seen to do as little as possible in the early moments of a crisis. But it is precisely in the early moments of a crisis when all eyes are on the leader that we have an opportunity to show we care and silence when there is an expectation of caring is interpreted by stakeholders 
as indifference. So if we fail to do and say things that demonstrate that we care, then that is initially interpreted by stakeholders as the very indifference we're trying to avoid, or even worse is interpreted as an affirmation of guilt. They must be guilty, otherwise it would have explained what happened. But if the silence is allowed to linger, if the silence is allowed to continue, not only do our stakeholders interpret us as indifferent, as not caring, but that silence allows our critics, our adversaries, the media, social media, to define us, to define the crisis, to define our motives, to define our actions, almost always in ways that are not helpful to us. So we lose the opportunity to define ourselves as caring, and we give people who don't really have our interests at heart the opportunity to define us as uncaring or worse. And if that silence persists, then that invites critics and opportunists to rally public opinion against us. And this is where we begin to get the calls for pickets, for boycotts, for change.org petitions, for congressional investigations, for law enforcement investigations, for people to be fired. It is in this phase of the crisis, after we've been silent, we've been interpreted as being indifferent, others have defined us and then opportunists see the chance to benefit from our distress that we've essentially lost control of the situation. But we can preempt all of this by being ready in the event of any crisis breaking with a mechanism that gives us what we call the first mover advantage. Silence in the immediate aftermath of the crisis gives the first mover advantage to critics, adversaries, media, social media. We lose that advantage. We need to keep that advantage early in the crisis. And here's a way to do that. We need to define the crisis ourselves. We need to define our motives ourselves. We need to define our actions ourselves if we are to control the interpretation of the event itself. Silence allows our adversaries to define the crisis against us, making it sound worse than we may know it to be. Silence gives our adversary the first mover advantage to define our motives as less than honorable or less than competent. Silence gives adversaries the opportunity to define our actions and our inaction in ways that can harm our relationship with stakeholders. So we need to be ready to seize the first mover advantage. And here's how we do that by being ready with a well-structured standby statement that can be easily adapted in the moment and the, the components of which can be approved by council in advance. So we don't have to spend very precious time arguing about what ought to go in the statement. We can figure that out in advance. And again, the patterns of crisis response and trust help inform 
what ought to be in a well-structured standby statement. And there are five components. Here they are. And if we have all five of these in our very first communication in a crisis, we can lock in the trust of those who matter to us because we will demonstrate that we care quickly. Here's the first. We need to acknowledge awareness of the event or the issue that constitutes the crisis. And here we need to be very diligent in not using euphemism. We need to name the crisis as it really is. There was an explosion at this plant as opposed to there was an unfortunate incident at this plant. There was the discovery of financial irregularities in our accounting system. We need to name the crisis with precision. If we use euphemism, adversaries will capitalize on that ambiguity and will define the crisis as worse than we know it to be. This acknowledgement needs to be followed by an expression of empathy. In particular, if there are actual victims, but even if there are potential victims, we need to express empathy for the people who are likely to be affected, even if the affected is merely inconvenience as opposed to physical health, physical safety, or heaven forbid, fatalities, we need to express empathy. Here's the good news. We can acknowledge and express empathy in ways that don't necessarily trigger legal liabilities, and we can negotiate with our lawyers ahead of time on what the boundaries are, what the guardrails are between self-destructive blabbering which we should not do, and self-defeating silence, which is the consequence of not saying anything. Once we've acknowledged and expressed empathy, the third step is to declare the values that inform us. Our first concern is the safety of our employees. Our first concern is making sure that all of our customers get the products that they have ordered. We declare the values that will inform the way we respond to the crisis. The fourth is to describe, at least conceptually, what we're going to do about it. It can include what we've already done. We're working closely with first responders. We've begun to explore the options in relocating our facility to another place. We are beginning an investigation. We describe what we're doing so that people perceive that we're taking the crisis seriously. And if we don't know enough to say what we're doing, we describe what we're doing to get to know what we need to know. We're looking into this carefully. We are talking to the people involved. We are consulting with the experts to help us get through this. We need to describe an affirmative process we're going through, even if we don't know enough to predict what we will actually do. And once we've done that, the fifth step is to make a commitment. Now, it could be a procedural commitment. We'll update you at three o'clock. Or it can be a substantive commitment. We'll get to the bottom of this and we'll fix it. But we make a commitment because that sets us up to fulfill that commitment. The commitment is a form of promise. And that promise fulfilled leads to trust. The commitment sets an expectation. And the fulfillment of that expectation is what leads to trust. Now, let's say we say we'll update you at three o'clock and three o'clock comes and there's nothing new. We still need to convene at three o'clock and say, hey, we promised we'd update you at three o'clock. Nothing has changed. Let me recap where we still are. 
that at least is the fulfillment of a procedural commitment. And the more we do that, even if we don't have anything new to report, trust remains because they see that we care. So that's the first principle in terms of when do we show we care, where possible we get the first mover advantage. And one way to do it is before people have defined us, we define it first. Sometimes we can't. Sometimes there will be a fire, there will be an explosion, there will be first responders at a facility, there will be the revelation of some kind of executive misconduct. At that moment, we don't have the first mover advantage, someone else already has it. In that moment, we need to turn to the second principle of timing, and that is known as the golden hour of crisis response. And the golden hour of crisis response comes to us through emergency medicine. And in emergency medicine, we know that a relatively small delay in getting appropriate treatment in an emergency room may lead to disproportionately bad outcomes for a patient. So if I grab my chest and fall on the ground and I'm having a heart attack, if I can be put within 15 minutes into a well-equipped ambulance with a well-trained crew, and in another 15 minutes, they can get me into a well-equipped emergency room with a well-trained cardiovascular emergency physician team, the chance of survival is very high. But if it takes 45 minutes to get into an ambulance and another 45 minutes to get to a well-equipped and staffed hospital, the likelihood of survival plummets. Well, there's an equivalent principle in crisis. And that is incremental delays in showing we care lead to greater than incremental negative outcomes. Another way to say this is the longer it takes, the harder it is. Because the longer it takes to show we care, the more we are losing trust that we then need to recover as opposed to maintaining trust. And my team and I, starting more than 30 years ago, began to quantify the moments in the golden hour where we can maintain or begin to prevent the further loss of trust and ideally begin to restore trust. And what I'm about to share with you was developed before the internet. I first published what I'm about to share in 1992, but it continues to apply even in a world of social media. And it is the moments in what used to be called the news cycle, what is now called the cycle of human interaction in digital technology and social media, where we have the opportunity to control a narrative. And here's the way it works. Assume a crisis becomes public. There's an explosion, there's a fire, there's the revelation of misconduct. As the moment that crisis becomes public, people begin to look to the company and its leaders to see what we are going to do about it. If within the first 45 minutes of the crisis becoming public, we can show we care. For example, because we put out one of those five-step well-structured standby statements, very few people will have heard about the crisis. Very few people will have begun to wonder what's wrong with them. Very few people will have lost trust, if at all, in the company. And our demonstration of caring then becomes part of the coverage of the crisis. And when people hear about the crisis, they also hear about our demonstration of caring. 
if we fail to show we care within the first 45 minutes, then the next 45 minutes really won't help us because a disproportionate number of people will now become aware of the crisis as people begin to share it on social media, as they begin to like things, as they begin to hashtag things, as memes begin to develop pretty soon, dramatically more people not only know about the crisis, but are part of the conversation about what are they going to do about it? Why haven't they done anything yet? Why haven't they told us what they're doing? And if after, say, three hours, we can show we care, that demonstration of caring now has to catch up with lots and lots of negative information about us. Eventually, it will. And if we can, within six hours, definitively show we care, whatever trust might have been lost will have been minimal, and it can be recovered, and we'll get through the crisis fine. But if we miss the six-hour window, if it makes it onto the evening news and the morning newspaper and the night before social media versions of the morning newspaper, then we're going to have three days of really bad visibility. And in the course of those three days, dramatically more people are going to hear about the crisis, are going to wonder what's wrong with us, and we haven't done anything about it. We'll begin to wonder what's really wrong at the company. And it is about at this mark that we begin to see the opportunists. We begin to see the calls for pickets, for boycotts, for investigations. We begin to see petitions. We begin to see calls for congressional hearings. We begin to hear calls for someone to be fired. And if after, say, a day and a half, we can show we care, that demonstration of caring has to catch up with lots and lots of negative visibility, including opportunists who have already begun to define us as incompetent or lacking integrity or both. And if we miss the three-day window, if it makes it into the weekly newspapers, weekly magazines, weekly television, weekly radio, weekly blogs, weekly podcasts, weekly meetings, and then the next week reaction to all of that, we're going to have dramatically more people wondering what's wrong with us. And if we miss that two-week window, it's going to be really hard for leaders to keep their jobs. We can see this pattern, for example, in BP Deepwater Horizon from 12 years ago. We can see this pattern in Volkswagen. We can see this pattern in Wells Fargo. We can see this pattern in Equifax. It is a repetitive pattern. So here are the decision criteria that we can, again, agree upon in advance with leadership and with counsel that help us determine when to show we care. And if we follow these decision criteria and pair them with the decision criteria of what to do, the decision criteria of what to do is a single question. What would reasonable people appropriately expect a responsible organization to do? The decision criterion for when to do it is four questions. And here are the four questions to ask yourself. And when the answer to any one of these becomes yes, then we need to show we care quickly. We don't have to act ask any of the other questions. If the answer to all four questions is no, then we have the opportunity to prepare, to rehearse, and to monitor so that when any one of these questions becomes yes, we can engage. So here are the four questions. Question one, will those who matter to us expect us to do something now or say something now and if the answer is yes, we need to do it and say it. 
If the answer is no, then we move to question two. Question two, will silence be interpreted as indifference or as guilt? And if the answer is yes, we need to not be silent. We need to also not be stupid. We need to show we care and not just blurt out something impulsively. But if we can show we care here, we're done, we move on. If the answer to both questions is no, we move to the third question. And that is, are others talking about us now, thereby shaping the perception of us among those who matter to us? If the answer is no or not yet, then we move to question four. But if the answer is yes, then we need to show we care. Now, let's be really clear. This doesn't ask, are people tweeting about us? It asks, are people tweeting about us in ways that are likely to shape the perception of us among those who matter to us? If it's just a couple of bots without followers or a couple of trolls without followers, that doesn't yet tip this threshold, but it requires us to continue to monitor. Fourth question, if we wait, do we lose the ability to influence the outcome? So is there a leaked document? It's only a matter of time before it come, becomes public. Is there a disgruntled employee who has threatened to do or show things that are gonna be harmful to us? If so, we'd better get in front of that. But if the answer to all four questions is no, again, we now have an opportunity to prepare, to develop that standby statement, to develop other materials, to rehearse the people who have to engage stakeholders, to be ready for when the answer to any one of these becomes yes, to engage effectively in the moment. So that's the second decision criterion between the first, the decision criteria of what to do, and the second decision criteria of when to do it, that gets you a long way towards being able to maintain trust in a crisis. Now I'm going to move to a case study. And it, as I said at the beginning, for those who joined since the introduction, I'm not going to use a chemi chemistry or chemicals industry case study because I don't want you to focus on the individual company and the dynamics of their product. I'm going to use a well-known crisis, but the patterns apply independent of the sector and independent of the form of crisis. Let me advise you, this is a difficult case study, and it's going to show video of a person being harmed. And that video, which is short, includes some sound that may distress some people. I will warn you before I play it, if you happen to be home and there are young people about or others who might be triggered by experiencing that kind of violence, please feel free to turn off your sound, to, to put, put down your screen for a moment. Uh, I don't want to subject anyone to distress, but this is a well-known crisis, and it's a crisis that we can harvest meaningful lessons from. And this is a crisis that happened at O'Hare International Airport on an airplane operated by a United Airlines affiliate, United Express. And <clears throat> something happened on the plane, and that became a defining moment for United Airlines, and it became a defining moment for the leadership of United Airlines. And how they responded to it, we will see, is among the least effective ways to respond. And you'll note they violated all of the principles 
that I described in my introduction over the last uh, 45 minutes. So here's the situation. It was O'Hare International Airport. It was a Sunday night. There was a United Express flight on a plane very similar to this plane, uh, getting ready to take off from O'Hare to Louisville, Kentucky, or Louisville, Kentucky. And Louisville is a short hop from O'Hare on an airplane. It's about a 20 minute wheels up to wheels down flight. Uh, you can drive from O'Hare to Louisville in four or five hours, depending on the traffic and the weather. And the plane had boarded. All of the passengers were on the plane. Every seat was taken. 100% of the seats were taken. All the passengers were on board. They were seated with seat belts. And the flight attendants were preparing to close the door for this last flight of the night to take off for Louisville, Kentucky. And just before the door closed, four United Airlines flight crew came running to the gate. And they got to the gate and they told the gate agent, we've got to get on that plane. Now, this was a flight crew that was being pre-positioned in Louisville who had been scheduled on the flight that was to leave three hours early. So they were deadheading to Louisville in order to fly that very plane that they were trying to get on back to O'Hare the next morning. So the crew flying it to Louisville was going to time out, not be able to fly it again in the morning. This crew was being pre-positioned. They had been on the earlier five o'clock flight, but it had delayed, 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 and then canceled. So United had a problem. And that is they needed to get the four flight crew to Louisville in order to fly that last flight out back in the morning. I'm going to ask you to type in the chat and I'm going to take a quick look in the chat. What would reasonable people appropriately expect a responsible airline to do when they've got to get these four people to Louisville, Kentucky, and the plane that they're trying to get on is full? So type in the chat. What would reasonable people appropriately expect? Vouchers for passengers, give up their seats, ask for volunteers. Yeah, you're uh, send them to Louisville by road. You could Uber to Louisville in four hours. So thank you all for, for typing in the chat. Uh, you were fulfilling, I'm sorry, you were describing what reasonable people would appropriately expect. Either get them to Louisville some other way, or if you need to put them on the plane, get volunteers to get off the plane. And that's actually a legitimate expectation because that is an airline procedure that the airlines actually have. And that is, it isn't quite voluntary, but you ask for someone to agree to receive payment in exchange for getting off the plane. So the typical deal is if you get off the plane, we'll guarantee you a seat on the next flight. And this is at seven in the morning. We'll put you up in a hotel, we'll pay for your dinner, we'll pay for your taxi, and we'll give you a voucher good for a certain dollar amount on a future flight. And that's what they did. They fulfilled that expectation. So they initially offered the hotel, the, the meal, the taxi, the guaranteed flight, plus a voucher for $400. And two people said, yes, we'll take it. And they got off. They then raised the deal to $400 and nobody took it. And you would ask, okay, now what would reasonable people appropriately expect? And I imagine if I asked you to type in the chat, you'd say, raise the price. But United's flight attendant chose not to raise the price. They thought it would take too long. 
So they decided to unilaterally direct two people to get off the plane. So they looked at the flight manifest. They found two people with the same last name sitting close together. And they decided, well, we could inconvenience one family and ask them to get off the plane. So they approached the couple. It happened to be a husband and wife. The husband was sitting on the aisle. The wife was sitting on the window. And the flight attendant said, sir, ma'am, you need to get off the plane. They were confused. And the closer party, the, the husband turned to the flight attendant and said, but we didn't volunteer. And she said, oh, we're not doing that anymore. Now you need to get off the plane. Under American law, if a uniformed flight crew member directs someone to get off the plane, they are required to get off the plane. Nevertheless, the gentleman said, no, that's not right. We did not volunteer. Get another volunteer. And then he pled his case. He said, look, I'm a doctor. I'm a physician. I'm on my way to Louisville to treat patients in the hospital first thing in the morning. Get someone else to get off the plane. The flight attendant chose instead to call, call Chicago Aviation Police. And three Chicago Aviation Police officers came on the plane. They directed the passengers to get off the plane. The doctor made the case again, said, no, I'm a physician. This isn't right. I'm getting, I'm going to Louisville to treat patients in the hospital, get somebody else to get off the plane. One of the security officers, there were three, one of the security officers grabbed the passenger and started to pull him out of his seat. Now, a little bit about that passenger. His name was Dr. David Dow. He was, at the time of this incident, 70 years old. He was also slight of build, which matters in this case study because of what happened next. So as the police officer is pulling on Dr. Dow, Dr. Dow screams in pain, and that's because he's wearing a seatbelt. And the first police officer does not recognize that the seatbelt is the problem, but a second police officer does. And instead of telling the first police officer to wait, the second police officer reaches in, snaps the seatbelt, Dr. Dow goes up in the air, comes down, and his face hits the armrest of the seat across the aisle. It breaks his nose, it knocks out two teeth, it gives him a concussion, and it knocks him unconscious. All of this is captured by video by passengers on the plane and then is up on social media right away. Now, I told you I would give you a warning. This is the warning. If you'd rather turn off your sound, if you'd rather shield or close briefly the screen, don't do it in a way that disconnects from the meeting, but just pull it down a bit. You don't need to watch it, but I will alert you when it is over. So here is the video that appeared on social media immediately afterward. So that video was on social media immediately after that. About 20 minutes later, and I still, I've read the reports, but I still don't understand how this happened. 
About 20 minutes later, Dr. Dow came back on the plane. Be advised, this is also disturbing video. He comes back on the plane and he's clearly in shock. He is bleeding and he repeats over and over again, I have to go home, I have to go home. I have to go home, 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 I have to. And then he sits, he stands in the back galley bleeding and repeats over and over again, they'll kill me, they'll kill me, they'll kill me, they'll kill me. Here is that video. Just kill me, just kill me, kill me, just kill me, kill me, just kill me, just kill me. Okay, that's the last we're gonna see of that disturbing video and audio. So now type in the chat, what would reasonable people appropriately expect a responsible organization to do in this circumstance? So type in the chat. This is now on social media. These three videos are on social media. Get medical attention immediately addressed with remorse. Lifetime free flights. Apologize publicly ASAP, says Marlene. Apologize and compensate. Fire the flight crew. All of those are directionally correct. But I want to point to the apologize immediately. The first thing that reasonable people would appropriately expect is an acknowledgement and an apology. And you could actually use the five-step process to craft that statement. A passenger was mistreated being removed from a flight. We express our sincerest apologies and sympathy for and empathy towards the passenger who was removed that way. Our first priority is the safety of our passengers. Here's what we're doing. We're going to investigate. We're going to meet with the passenger. We're going to do everything we can to help him. And then a commitment. We will keep you posted. You can, you can do all of that in a heartbeat. United said and did nothing that Sunday night. And by morning, not only were those videos all over social media, those videos were all over mainstream media. They were on the Today Show, on Good Morning America, on American Morning, even on Morning Joe. They were everywhere. And United was nowhere. So United has lost the first mover advantage. They've begun to lose the golden hour. And then finally, midday, about 17 hours after the event, United posts its first public comment. And it happens to be in the name of the CEO of United. I give him credit for that. But I don't give him credit for what he actually posted. And here's the tweet that was posted in the name of the CEO, Oscar Munoz. And it begins... This is an upsetting event for all of us here at United. I, I went back on purpose. The first sentence is about how we at United feel. And then he attempts an apology. But I want you to notice he apologizes not for what happened, but for having to do something. And I suggest if you're apologizing for having to do something, then you're not really apologizing for what you did. But I want you to notice what he is apologizing for having to have done. He says, this is an upsetting event to all of us here at United. 
I apologize for having to reaccommodate these customers. And I said before, when you use euphemism, that's going to cause problems. And as soon as he said reaccommodate, the world went crazy and the story changed. And it was no longer the horrible thing that happened to a passenger on United. It's United is in complete denial. And it began a series of social media conversations, including this. Hey, United, I'm a frequent flyer of yours. This morning, I chose to reaccommodate thousands of dollars in business to Southwest Air, hashtag bummer, to which Southwest replied, we can't wait to welcome you on board. Direct message us your reservation number for a little treat before takeoff. And suddenly it was all reaccommodate all the time, not only on social media, but on mainstream media. And that night at 11.35 Eastern time, comedian talk show host Jimmy Kimmel did his entire six minute monologue on reaccommodate. We're not gonna look at the entire six minute monologue, but we'll look at 90 seconds of that monologue. Imagine being United Airlines and Jimmy Kimmel is opening his show with your reaccommodate tweet. Which is all terrible, but this might be the worst part of all of it. The CEO of United released a statement via Twitter. This is what CEO tweeted. This is an upsetting event to all of us here at United. I apologize for having to reaccommodate these customers. <laughs> he said, reaccommodate. This is like we reaccommodated El Chapo out of Mexico. Sanitize, say nothing, take no responsibility, corporate BS speak. I, I don't know how the guy who sent that tweet didn't vomit when he typed it out, but it's crazy. I mean, when, when you break this down, a man was forcibly dragged off a flight because they oversold it, which how that happens in the first place, I don't know. And by the way, they almost certainly could have gotten volunteers by offering more money or travel value. Maybe 800 bucks wouldn't do them, but they could have gone up to 1,000 or 5,000 or 100,000. Who cares? It's not the passenger's fault if you sold too many seats on your plane. United didn't even admit they did anything wrong. In fact, if anything, they seem to be doubling down on this. We're United Airlines. You do what we say, when we say, and there won't be a problem. Capiche? If we say you fly, you fly. If not, tough <laughs> Give us a problem, and we'll drag your ass off the plane. And if you resist, we'll beat you so badly, you'll be using your own face as a flotation device. United Airlines. you. So now United has an even bigger problem. That parody commercial is now everywhere. It's on social media. It's on mainstream media the next morning. And this is what everyone is talking about. And this is now day three. Sunday was day one. Monday was day two. Now it's Tuesday, day three. And finally, midday Tuesday, Day three, United comes out with a statement. By the way, on this Tuesday, day three, United had lost a billion dollars in market value in the stock market. 
Here's United Statement midday on day three from the CEO. The truly horrific event that occurred on this flight has elicited many responses from all of us. Outrage, anger, disappointment. I share all of these sentiments and one above all, my deepest apologies for what happened. Like you, I continue to be disturbed by what happened on this flight. And I deeply apologize to the customer forcibly removed and to all of the customers aboard. No one should ever be mistreated this way. I want you to know that we will that we take full responsibility and we will work to make it right. Now, let me ask you, type in the chat, what is your reaction to this letter? What is your reaction on seeing this statement from United? Too late, too late, too late. Keep going. Should have been the first letter. Yep, it's too late. Better not great. Doesn't feel sincere. Sounds forced, fake. Nice try. <laughs> so here's my question to you. Let me ask you a different question. If this had gone out one hour after those three videos on Sunday, if this had gone out on Sunday, what would have happened next? Imagine this letter going out on Sunday. People would have been impressed by the quick action, says Megan. You're right. What else? What would have happened? United would have had far more credibility. That's right, Cynthia. What else? There wouldn't have been the Jimmy Kimmel. We'd only be upset at law enforcement. All of that is right. Here's, here's something I really want to point to. A good enough statement early is better than the perfect statement too late. And if they had done something like this on Sunday, what they did on Sunday would have been part of the morning coverage on Monday. And they would not have done the reaccommodate tweet. And therefore, there would not have been Jimmy Kimmel. And all of this points to the golden hour principle. The longer it takes to show you care, the harder it is. And one of the things that became very clear is this letter would have been sufficient on Sunday. But by Tuesday, it was not sufficient. And therefore, by Wednesday, the CEO of United had to go on television and express his shame for what happened. We're not going to watch the entirety of his Good Morning America interview, but we'll watch the first three minutes or so. So here's Oscar Munoz. Imagine being the United CEO having to go on television today, day four. Oscar, this incident has sparked outrage around the world. There are calls this morning to boycott your brand. What did you think when you saw that video of a man being dragged off of one of your planes? Oh, good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, it's not so much what I thought, it's what I felt. Probably the word of shame comes to mind. You know, as I think about our business and our people, um, the first thing I think is important to say is to apologize to Dr. Dow, um, his family, 
uh, the passengers on that flight, our customers, our employees. That is not who our family at United is. And you saw us at a bad moment. And this can never, will never happen again on a United Airlines flight. That's my premise and that's my promise. Why not communicate that shame, as you call it initially, in your initial apology, in your initial statement, you apologized for reaccommodating passengers. And in your internal notes to your employees, you talked about a belligerent and disruptive passenger. Why did it take until Tuesday to offer a more full-hearted apology? I think my first uh, reaction to most issues is to get the facts and circumstances. And uh, the initial, my initial words fell short of truly expressing what we were feeling. And that's something that I've learned from. Uh, the expression of apology and specific to the folks I mentioned before uh, is an important part of a conversation like this because again, that shame and embarrassment was pretty palpable for me and for a lot of our family. You said this will never happen again. What will you be doing to ensure that promise? Well, as I've, as I've outlined uh, in uh, some of my messaging is really around reviewing a fairly deep and thorough review of a lot of our policies that support this. Um, specifically, if I were to be here today as I am, I would tell you that the use of law enforcement aboard an aircraft uh, has to be looked at very carefully. They're clearly there for a purpose of safety, and we want to make sure they, you know, they, they protect us. But for other reasons, I think that's a policy we have to absolutely relook at. What went wrong in this scenario? It was a system failure. We have not provided our frontline supervisors and managers and individuals with the proper tools, policies, procedures that allow them to use their common sense. They all have an incredible amount of common sense. And this issue could have been solved by that. That's on me. I have to fix that. And I think that's something that we can do. What needs to change here specifically? Because if you look at the policy, and a lot of people learned this week through this story and are surprised to learn that in the fine print, you can be asked to leave a flight involuntarily without any compensation as you decide it. What needs specifically to change here? Were those flight attendants, were those employees of United, were they not enabled to offer people more money to voluntarily leave that flight? I, I think, uh, again, back to the broader system issue, I think there's many of those points that I think we need to relook at. Uh, there is an incentive program that works pretty well outside of the gate. Clearly, when you get into an airplane and you're boarded and you're luggage and you're situated, your incentive model needs to change. And I think that's one of the policies that we'll look at. We do empower our frontline folks to a degree, but again, we need to expand and adjust those policies to, again, allow a little bit more common sense. In the future, if no one voluntarily decides to leave a plane, based on the amount of money that United is offering. Will we're not, United- We're not gonna put a law enforcement official to take them off. The a airplane. law enforcement official will never come on one of your planes again. To remove a booked, paid, seating, pass seating passenger, we can't do that. Have you spoken to Dr. Dow? 
I have not. I have reached out to him and have left a message, and our team has tried to reach him on several occasions. We've not been able to contact him directly. I do look forward to a time when I can, as much as I'm able to, apologize directly to him for what's what's happened. What do you think he deserves in all of this? Well, certainly an apology. And from that point on, I think we'll have to see. Do you think he's at fault in any way? No, he can't be. He was a paying passenger sitting on our seat in our, in our, in our aircraft. And no one should be treated that way, period. There are a number of PR professionals who believe that this was handled improperly by you and your company. And some are even calling for you to resign. Have you considered that option? No. Uh, I was hired to make United better, and we've been doing that, and that's what I'll continue to do. So that's just a little bit of that interview. I note this interview would not have had to happen at all if they'd only published the good statement Sunday. But when they published it Tuesday, that was not enough. And Mr. Munoz had to do this interview on Wednesday. And even this was not enough because there was competition. At the same time he was on Oscar, Good Morning America, Dr. Dow and his wife were in their lawyer's office announcing that they were going to sue United Airlines. And <clears throat> there's, we understand there's been a settlement between Dr. Dow and United. Apparently, there's confidentiality agreements on both sides, non-disclosure agreements. But if you go to the Google and you ask how much did Dr. Dow get, the estimates are anywhere between $14 million and $140 million. And I have no idea whether any of those is even accurate. But I note all of this would have been prevented if only United had followed the very procedures they were supposed to have followed. So when Mr. Munoz is saying, we don't empower our frontline people. It was actually a frontline person taking initiative, violating United policies. A couple of days later, Delta Airlines announced that it was going to increase the amount of money that passengers could receive to up to $10,000. That sets a new expectation for all major airlines. A week after that, United announced that Mr. Munoz, who had been scheduled to automatically become board chair in January, would not become board chair as planned. Years later, he did become board chair. And then at the end of the month, United published a report including 10 changes in policies, including not using law enforcement to remove a, a paying passenger who's not misbehaving or a safety risk. It included a whole bunch of really common sense solutions, including reducing overbooking, including uh, you uh, having flight crews uh, be put on planes an hour ahead of time, including making it easier for you to pick up your baggage if the baggage is under the plane. These are all common sense ways to deal with what happened. But I note again, none of this would have been necessary if they'd only showed they cared quickly on Sunday night. I'm going to close with a technique to restore trust when trust has been lost. This will only take me a couple of minutes and then we can open it up to questions and we can open it up to discussion on chat. So as I said before, one of the patterns 
is it is much easier to maintain trust than to recover trust after it has been lost. But as we see with Mr. Munoz and United, they lost a lot of trust. And they lost a lot of trust in ways that were completely preventable. So an unfortunate incident on Sunday became a defining event because of the poor response United had. But whether it's United or any other institution or leader, there is a way to recover trust. And I think the United plan, the 10 policy changes were not only appropriate to make sure their operations ran well, but were part of a process of attempting to recover trust. I think United still has a way to go even five years later. But here is the technique for recovering trust when trust has been lost. Again, I remind us or those who came late, trust is the consequence of promises that have been fulfilled, of expectations that have been met, and of stated values that are the lived experience of those who matter to us. So how do we recover trust? How do we restore trust when trust has been lost? There are four steps. The first step is to make a promise, to set an expectation, to declare a value. And when we do, we are setting up stakeholders to notice when we fulfill that promise, when we meet that expectation, when they see us living that stated value. The second step is to actually fulfill that promise, to meet that expectation, to live that stated value. But that's not enough. We need also to remind our stakeholders that we made the promise in the first place, that we set the expectation in the first place, that we declared that value in the first place. And then we need to show that this thing we're doing right now is the very fulfillment of that promise, the very meeting of that expectation, the very living of that value. And then we repeat. And here's the art of this. If you know you're going to do something anyway, oops, I'm sorry. If you know you're going to do something anyway, make it a promise. If you know you're going to do 10 things anyway, make it 10 promises and use the cycle for each of those promises. If you know you're going to do one thing and that there are seven components to that one thing, in effect, you can make eight promises. You can make the big promise and then you can make seven individual smaller promises. And for each one, make the promise, fulfill the promise, remind people that you made the promise, show how this is the fulfillment of that promise, and then keep going. And this is the way that organizations recover trust after it has been lost. With that, we've got about nine minutes before we're scheduled to adjourn. Uh, I invite you to post questions in the chat. If And Amelia, I'll, I'll defer to you whether people unmute, ask questions in, in live voice, uh, or people type in the chat, but I'm happy to do it either way. If you type in the chat and we don't get to your question, 
then I will respond to the question in writing and it will be sent along with the package. Perfect. So I will just share on the screen how you can ask a question if you want to personally ask. There should be a bar at the bottom of your screen and it will have this reactions button you see in the middle. If you want to click raise hand uh, from that reactions button, we will let you go ahead and ask your question um, unmuted. So if anybody has a question they want to ask, there was also a question put in the chat, and I think this actually is going to go kind of you know, along the lines of the book that you mentioned on our uh, pre-webinar prep, uh, goes along the lines of it, and I'll just read it out loud. Um, it's one of the biggest challenges I have personally seen with crisis communications in today's world is how misinformation spreads like wildfire. Is it better to directly refute misinformation about a crisis, risking backfire effects, or simply stick to your narrative with correct info and hope it drowns out the bad info? And that is a great question. By the way, that would be a great webinar. Let, let me say, I have a piece on LinkedIn right now on the dangers of misinformation and the need to call it out. And, I, and one of the things I say on my LinkedIn piece, it was published yesterday, is we need to call out the misinformation before it has taken root. Because once it takes root, it's really hard to, to not, uh, to have people not believe it. Once people begin to believe it, you can't change their mind. And the backfire effect that you mentioned is when somebody believes something, you tell them they're wrong and they dig in. Uh, my next book is on COVID response in the United States. And I have a whole chapter on COVID misinformation, both misinformation pre-vaccines and misinformation post-vaccines. And in May, the head of the Food and Drug Administration declared that misinformation is the single leading cause of death in the United States right now. I call attention to the first mover advantage. One reason to communicate thoroughly as early as you can is you fill that information vacuum before the misinformation has taken root. So you can preempt that misinformation from taking root. I talk about a specific COVID example of that in my LinkedIn piece. So please go to LinkedIn, look up my name, follow me if, you, if you'd like to, I'd love to be connected with you, but read the misinformation piece there. Awesome, thank you. Um, and then one of our advisors actually asked a question and he asked, what do you think of using social media versus a press conference? And that came from Tom Corcoran. I don't need, I don't believe it needs to be either or. And these days, anything that is in the press is also definitionally in social media. The way I describe it is where would those who matter to you appropriately expect to find what you're saying? So if you need to reach your employees, yeah, you, probably, you might need to do a press conference. You might need to do social media, but you might also need to send them something directly. If you need to reach your investors, yeah, you might do a press conference, you might do social media, you might need to connect with them directly. If you need, for example, to have your customers know something, you might do social media, you might do mainstream media press conference, but you might also have to send something to them directly. So I start with whom are we trying to reach? Where would they expect to find information about you? So a lot of people, don't necessarily put stuff, a lot of companies don't necessarily put stuff on their website very much. 
because they do a lot of social media. But if your stakeholders would expect to find it on your website, you ought to put it there or put it on your Facebook page or on if you have a LinkedIn page as a company there or wherever else people would expect to find it. But it's it's better to have a consistent message that is across platforms than to limit yourself to any one platform because we live in a disaggregated information environment. So in, in, in the old days, when I started 40 years ago, there was one source of information and that was the evening news or the daily newspaper. But now there are so many sources of information. We wanna make sure that we reach our stakeholders where they are. Awesome. Okay, we have two more questions here. How does the chemical industry generally fare when it comes to managing these kind of scenarios? Is there a typical industry response or is it a case of some organizations generally doing a better job while others don't? And that one came from Nicole Price. And, and let me say, I have a couple of clients that are, that are active in chemicals, mostly in, in pharmaceutical, not in industrial chemical use. Uh, I haven't studied the chemical industry the way, for example, I've studied financial services or the military or others. Uh, historically, the chemicals industry has gotten a bad rap in crisis response, at least early in my career. I think of the Bhopal disaster, which I was not involved in, but I was at the firm that was doing the work on Bhopal and Union Carbide back in, in the 80s. Uh, uh, I think of Dow in the aftermath of uh, Vietnam and Agent Orange, uh, but but generally uh, chemical companies have gotten a bad rap. It doesn't mean it's necessarily always deserved. I think more important than the sector is the timeliness and quality of the demonstration of caring of an individual company as quickly after an incident or event as possible. And, and because this is an industry that has critics and adversaries, uh, you want to preempt the critics and adversaries from getting that first mover advantage. Perfect. Um, and then we have another question. And I don't know, uh, Professor Gracie, if you remember my midterm, I actually wrote about a accident at a chemical plant. So this question's Pretty interesting, uh, but it comes from Cynthia Thompson. And she says, in a chemical incident, often the safety of employees has to be addressed with internal communication. How do we manage the difference in what we might need to communicate internally, which can get out very quickly versus what is shared externally? And my advice to all clients, this is independent of the chemicals industry, is anything you say internally will get out and anything you say externally will get in. And it's better, as I said in response to the earlier question, have a consistent message across platforms. The level of emphasis and detail may be different internally than externally, because the employees may need to know more things than external, but don't assume that it stays internal. But what would reasonable people internally expect to hear from you? That's what you ought to say. What would reasonable people externally expect to hear from you? There ought to be alignment, but it doesn't need to be identical. And okay. let me, if I may, put up my contact information. Definitely, please. And we'll also share your contact information in the follow-up. So you can email me if you want to be in direct contact. You can follow me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and everything I've talked about today, except the trust restoration cycle, is in my book, The Agony of Decision, Mental Readiness, and Leadership in a Crisis. The United case is in there. All of the decision criteria are in there. 
and and uh, uh, also a lot of other stuff we didn't have the time to get to today is in there. Amelia, we're coming up on adjournment, so I'll hand it back to you. Thank you so much. So we will send out your contact information along with the deck and the recording. Um, and I will also